If we could begin with you introducing yourself and describing what you do. My name is Ryan Gander and I, um, my job title is mainly artist, but I do other things as well. Your job title is mainly artist, but you do other things as well. Yeah. You, you, you're an author. Uh, well, I do all sorts. I do writing, clothes design, make TV programs, uh, some consultancy work, architecture. I do uh, all sorts invention. Invention. Oh, what kind of invention? Uh, <laughs> what kind of invention? What I make lamps. I suppose that's a sort of invention. Um, the thing is, when you get into a taxi in London, the taxi driver always asks, what do you do? And if you say you're an artist, you get a lot of awkward questions. And your journey is um, difficult to, to, to withstand. So I don't say I'm an artist. I usually say I'm a teacher or uh, I make films. If you hadn't been an artist, do you think you would have been a teacher or a filmmaker? Well, I was a teacher before I was an artist. Ah. Um, I probably would have been maybe a writer, script writer, or uh, one of those syndicate writers for Mills and Boone, writing romance with 10 other people, where the main character's hair changes colour <laughs> halfway through. Okay. Your, um, your artwork, if we could talk about that for a second, is... Uh, it's a lot like you're describing the sort of rest of what you do. It, it, you've never adopted a single style. Like you've never, um, th there's no work that you see that you can easily say, oh yeah, that's a Ryan Gander. That's true. Is, was that an intentional approach to making art? Um, it's intentional insofar as I hate art that's predictable and I dislike practices that are repetitive. Um, the whole point of being an artist for me is to be able to do new things every day. Wake up and make uh, the uniform for a McDonald's drive-through attendant, and then the next day wake up and make a ballet about the idea of teaching dance. And you know, the distance between those things is what makes life brilliant. And it's the only real occupation where you can do whatever you want when you wake up, which is such a liberty. Um, is it intentional? It's intentional as so far as um, there's a work ethic and a conceptual rigour associated with the pursuit of language. And if you're really good at visual language, why would you make the same thing every day? Um, you know, if I spent 15 years learning Russian, I'd be pretty proficient in Russian. But I wouldn't just say the same word when I woke up every morning and, and nothing else. Do you think, though, that there's something that does um, unite everything you do? 38 years of being me unites it. Um, it's really about contributing to art history and contributing to visual language. I mean, for me, it's really about how articulate you can be in visual language and... Um, just the the intonation and the 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 way of speaking and the way of mastering that language is a bit like it's like a pursuit or an endeavor or something to master it's like a quest for me to be as fluent as possible in it but not all your work is is visual 
right? You did a piece at the Biennial Venice Biennale uh, a couple of years ago that was just wind. Everything's visual, really. Even if it's a piece that works in the form of storytelling and fable making, there's always someone telling the story. There's the barroom table that the story's told at. Um, the wind piece is visual because there's someone standing in the wind. But, uh, yeah, the work, it's, it's hard to explain. The work is, is so broad and so disparate and all over the place. It's hard for me to talk about my work as a practice because whatever I spoke about, I'd be contradicting myself because there'd be another work that would be interested in something else or would be, you know, a counterpoint to it. Some people have, have looked at it um, as a sort of deliberate evasion of... Uh... Style. Yeah. Yeah, there's... There is some evasion of stylistic signature, yeah. Does that... Which is also a bit suicidal in the art world because obviously all the artists that are really wealthy make things that look like the same. So people who collect art can say, that's a A, that's a B, that's a C. You just See, the way I purposely question. didn't name anyone's name there. But you just <laughs> stole my question. Sorry. Which which was exactly that, you know. is it, does Does that make it tough to become a, let's just name... A Damien Hirst, right? Because you see his work and everyone knows. When that. you edit this, is it rhetorical? Or are you in the. We're in it. You're in it, okay? What do you think? What? I just wanted you to say Damien Hirst, not me. Oh, I said it. I said it. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, is it is it a deliberate evasion? And does it, you know, with, with galleries that represent you, do, do they ever say, oh, come on, Ryan, let's just do some uh, more of the palette paintings? No. Of course they don't. <laughs> but I mean, I work with incredible galleries and I'm a difficult artist, aren't I? To, if I had a gallery, I wouldn't represent me at all. It sounds like a nightmare working with me. You never know what you're getting. You never know if you'd be able to sell it or not. Uh, some works are about the idea that they can't be sold and they still need to be shown. Um, but I mean, the galleries that I work with aren't, I mean, of course, everyone needs money. Otherwise, I need money. Otherwise, I wouldn't make any more work. But that's not the primary reason they're working with me. They're working with me because they're interested in what I make. And, you know, that's why I have really good relationships with my galleries. And you know, there's a lot of conversation and trust there. I'm interested um, in in talking, which is a, it's a, a quick gear change, but... Um, Specifically talking about uh, male artists taking up the subject of family in their in their work, which doesn't happen very often. No, it doesn't, does it? You've done it. Yeah. Um, Matthew J. Jackson just did a beautiful piece or a show in Zurich that was all about family. Um, why why have you engaged with it? Because because the. The primary focus of my work is education and development, mine and, you know, and like I said, mastering visual language and pushing things forwards and contributing to art history and adding to that vocabulary and that, you know, body of visual language. And because of that, I'm really interested in education and development. And if you have a child, you know that it, the, there's a wonder in seeing them grow and become little people and 
the way that their mind works and just it's impossible for me not to be massively intrigued and massively jealous of their lack of inhibition uh, and their lack of cultural baggage and their the brilliance in their naivety. You know, when my kids go into a gallery and they see work, they say what they think. No adult goes in and says what they think. And if you say what you think, you're not afraid of uh, elitism, um, of knowledge, then, then, yeah, you contribute. Can we, can we talk specifically about the um, tell my mother not to worry piece? It's uh, a ghost. A ghost of Is you. it a ghost? Yes. I have long titles and lots of them, so I'm never <laughs> totally sure which work people talk about. It's a marble ghost. It was actually, um, it's an offcut of another work, which is called I is dot 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 instead of I am, which would be the abonics for I am, uh, like je suis, I is. No, I be, that would be. <laughs> anyway, I is dot dot dot, which is, is, I think it's part of the human condition for us all to build dens, shelter. Shelter's like an uh, instinctive activity, finding shelter, building shelter. Um, when you have kids, you see them building dens in the lounge with an old chair and a, a clothes horse that you dry clothes on and a big sheet. And they climb inside and they say, this is my house. And then um, the goofy dad climbs inside with the kid and says, this is my house. But the dad doesn't think it's a house. The dad knows it's a clothes horse and a chair and a sheet. But the kid really knows it's a house. And that's the difference uh, between kids' naive imagination and adults' um, tarred imaginations. But, so everyone's done that. Whoever's watching this has done that, definitely. That's because everyone does it instinctively. Um, and she, she did that, built a den. And then I looked at it and I just thought it was finished. It's all done. So uh, I took photos of it and then I moved it to a studio, sprayed it with super glue, um, had a mold made of it and had a, a cast, marble cast made of it. So you end up with a, a solid marble den, um, which looks like a sheet thrown over a chair. Or, but the compositions are hers, olives. Um, which is also interesting because she keeps making them. She's five now. And every time she makes one, uh, it's slightly bigger because she's slightly bigger. So it grows in its mass with her age, but it also sort of develops intellectually, becomes more complicated, um, more intricate, architecturally more elaborate. Uh, so there's a few of them. She's going to stop making them. Then I won't be able to pay any assistance, and I'll go bankrupt. What um, with that piece, I, I hadn't thought about the the building of a domestic space, which is sort of what it right. It's a den. It's a because it's, it's solid, and you only see it from the outside. Right. Yeah. Is that tension intentional, or is it? <clears throat> uh, they It's not. Everything's not non-intentional. They just are because I don't really make them, she makes them, so I don't make any aesthetic decisions about them. Um, it's very hard to replicate, take the sheet and the chair and the clothes horse to a space and, and set it up, which is why I thought they should be cast 
and then marble seam. You know, you can put different things in the in with the resin. So pick marble dust. There's also some sort of reference to the legacy of um, Roman sculpture, I guess. Traditional drapery in marble. But yeah, because I mean, you're saying you don't author them, but you do author them because you make the decision to put them in marble, right? That's true. And they're going to outlive, presumably, all of us. They might not. I don't know. I've never thought of that, actually. Well, there's a It's quite interesting, yeah. Maybe they will. Well, they probably will, yeah. Well, and the, the permanence <laughs> of something that is so impermanent in this like quick, fleeting moment. Um, yeah. I don't know. Never actually thought about what my work, where physically it would be when I'm dead before. It's quite interesting, actually. I've always, when I've thought about being dead, I've always thought about the the sort of the legacy in storytelling of what I did, not physically what the things, where they were, what they are. I've always thought about people talking about things that I made never actually thought where they would be or what they do. So I've learned something today. Well, that's, but that's very interesting given you're so prolific. I mean, you, you make a lot of work. Yeah, but, yeah. No so there's a lot problem. of stuff. Uh, yeah, there must be a lot of stuff. I don't, you know, a lot, some artists are quite, um, they like the stuff that they make and they, you know, but I'm not, Physically, the things don't matter. As soon as I finished it, I just... I mean, even when I'm making it, I'm thinking about the next thing. That's the biggest criticism of me from my studio manager is that I start stuff and then leave everyone to pick pieces up and move on to the next project when it's not even finished, the, the 20 I have going. Um, because I just like playing about with ideas, I guess. And the things, when they're done, they're just like... They're not really the artwork. The artwork is the fact that I did it. These things, the stuff that you're on about is just like byproducts or offcuts or fallout. Receipts. It's like a receipt. It's the, it's the bit that's left over. It's not the actual, the actual work. The work is it happening in history and people knowing about it and people enjoying the fact that somebody did it it makes it it makes a lot of sense um does it yeah it does it's, especially when you uh you know in invisibility is talked about with your work so much both with the den pieces the the, the wind piece we just discussed um <clears throat> and i think there's that uh, you resist this um the finalness of the object, if that makes sense. Which is probably why I haven't I, considered about them being left I around. Think, yeah. Yeah. I'm not a bit I'm not a big fetishist of things, that's the thing. I mean I collect loads and loads of things. I have lots and lots of collections of weird things like mints, stones from my family graves, um Dear armor postcards, dice, shoes, stuff that I think is interesting, but they're, 
like the artworks that I make, if, it, if they're physical, there's no sentimental attachment to them. They're just carriers or vessels for a brilliant idea. How, um, can we, I, I want to talk about the happy prince mm -hmm. a little bit because I think <clears throat> the idea of nostalgia and this idea that we're touching on of, of art as a memorial and something that lasts is implicit in that work, but maybe you could talk about it a bit. Um, the happy prince is it's essentially, it's a, it's a fake ruin that I made as a public sculpture in Central Park. And it's a fake ruin of, uh, it's a visualization from my imagination of the last page of an Oscar Wilde storybook called The Happy Prince that my father used to read to me as a kid at bedtime. Um, and I made it because of my awkward disdain of public art. I think there's like, there's public art and then there's art for the public and the two shouldn't be confused at all and I mean I do a lot of I've probably done like maybe six public sculptures or things like that it's public artworks um, and I've probably been asked to do about 50 or invited to do to to um, pitch if that's the word uh, to, to come to a jury with an idea, to propose an idea, uh, about 50. And I've proposed about 30. Because not all the contexts are very interesting. Um, so there's a lot I haven't got. And obviously, it's not me being egocentric or big-headed, but my proposals were the best. <laughs> um... But I would think that because they were my ideas and I wanted to see them exist, so any artist would say that. But The Happy Prince is essentially a story about the, the disparity between public art and art for the public. And there's a there's a prince that's covered in gold leaves and he has emeralds for eyes and a ruby in his sword hilt and a little swallow flies down and lands on his shoulder. And he asks the swallow to distribute this wealth amongst the city, so the sparrow plucks the jewels from his eyes and pulls the gold leaf from his um, body and takes it to a little girl who's selling matches in the gutter and the matches are wet. And essentially that is what public arts should be. And at the end of this children's story, uh, the town councillor comes around and says, the happy prince is looking very shabby, tear it down and uh, put up a statue of me, which is what public art is. So I thought it would be perfect to illustrate the point I've uh, yeah so I have a funny relationship with works in public space I did a six months ago I was asked to to propose something for a university in Norway and all these public art things have a colossal amount of money which you always feel a bit awkward making a thing with because you know an idea can can cost you 50 pence to make and be as well invisible it doesn't have to be any have any scale and it can be a, a huge work so having that amount of money to make something that's permanent and big is always a bit distressing to me and when I went to do the site visit I noticed at the university there was a lot of students that couldn't afford to be there so my proposal was to redistribute the money like a modern day Robin Hood 
by introducing a Norwegian forest cat to the university um, and starting a scholarship where one student would be picked to feed the cat and they would have their fees paid from the budget that I would be given to produce some ghastly a cat. sculpture. A cat, yeah. Because it was, it was a new university and it was far too institutional. It needed some sort of domestication. Um, so I thought that was cat. great because it would end up giving the, the uh, 40 students for 40 years free education. And that's a good way to spend public art money because it's public art. <laughs> and it's nice to have a Norwegian forest cat running around uni university. Very therapeutic. I chose a Norwegian forest cat because they're, um, they're the least allergic, hypoallergenic. Uh, anyway, needless to say, I didn't get it. They picked some ghastly collage made of tiles or something. Um, but that also illustrates the, the point of the, the uh, contradiction between public art and art for the public. Do you... Um... I could go on and tell you about 20 of them. <laughs> we could just do a whole... 20 failures. ...interview of that. Well, we were yesterday we were talking with... Uh, oh, gosh, I can't remember <clears throat> who said it. I think it was Hans Ulrich was talking about that um, architects is well documented. All the things that they, all the projects they imagine um, are well documented and about 50% of them are actually realized. But with artists that... Yeah, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But Hans did a, a project that was unrealized projects. Yeah. That was, I think, a, a book. Was it a book? I can't remember. Yeah. What, um, since we're on the public art, Okay. Did did you see the locked room scenario as as another? Um, I mean, it wasn't public, but it sort of was. Yeah, that worked hard to explain because it's a bit of everything, isn't it? It's like architecture, performance, object making. I mean, I made about forty works by seven fictional artists for it, so I was making art as well for it. But it took about a year to make. I mean, the, just the online content, we had about five people doing that for three months just to make the histories of all the fictional writers and curators. And it was quite a yeah, time-consuming thing. Adrian Searle said he'd never get to the bottom of it. That he? he could never figure it out. That's the good then. <laughs> That's the, probably the perfect compliment. Yeah, if you still thinking about it on the bus on the way home even if it was a horrible experience it's obviously a good work what how how much i mean with that piece um obviously so much fiction is tied up in the work this storytelling do you, do you think that's true of all your all of your work mm, not all of it it's hard to say anything about all of it um but some of it, and a lot of it, yeah, is storytelling. But it's storytelling through examples. With with hindsight, do you ever look at the work and change the um, analogy or the meaning? Does it does stuff change for yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, history changes the meaning all the time. That's it's quite weird, actually, how works change over time. Um, and you know, you have to make a million decisions about a work, ask a million questions. And a lot of them are intuitive and instinctive and you don't know you're questioning them. And the, the decades of learning about asking questions and about art and about visual language inform those so they just happen automatically. But 
there's also, you know, you're not, you're not, it's not like the matrix where you move your hands around really fast and you can just pull up any information. Um, yeah, a lot of the time there's things that you just don't know is going to happen. I think that's the, one of the good bits in a way. Do you um, approach your writing in the same way that you uh, like ap approach the object making, for lack of a better word? Um, the write, I do lots of different types of writing in different styles and different voices for different reasons. So it's also hard to, to put your finger on that. But I'm really slow at writing. I find it really, really difficult. I'm all right at talking. I can just about articulate what I'm thinking with words. But when it comes to writing, the slowness of getting the words down, I lose my point. And then, so if I was to write a review of someone's show, it would take me about a week. Well, you know, people write them in an afternoon or a few hours. Um, but the last book I wrote, Ampersand, I wrote with a dictaphone which was really interesting. There was a, I can't remember her name, but there was a journalist that used to work for The Guardian and she, I heard that everything that she'd written was into a dictaphone and it had a real conversational style to it. Um, and because I live in the countryside, but the main studio's in London, I commute a lot. So sometimes I take the train, but sometimes I drive. So I wrote the last book when I was driving on a, uh, just with a dictaphone. So it's um, punctuated with uh, beeps of the horn and swearing at cyclists. Is that in the book? No. No. That'd be fun if yeah. you had kept all that stuff in. Yeah, I, I, re I just speak. I speak it all and then it's transcribed. And then when I get the transcription, I just go through it. And then someone who's really intelligent uh, rewrites it essentially <laughs> to make it sound better. Yeah, take out the swimming. What about um, the video works? So we've, we've sort of we've briefly touched on the sculptures and the writing, and um, what about the video works? I mean, in Man on a Bridge, you resist letting anyone see the the action if you want an action. Um, That's in, do you know what? If there is a common theme, you know, you're talking about looking for a common theme. If there is a common theme, I think it's. Uh, Resisting closure. Yeah. Like you, t you talk about invisibility. I think it's resisting closure is the thing. Trying not to close anything down. Try and make things as full as meaning as possible so that there's more out, out points than in points. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, that, that piece for me is, is, um, is wonderfully poetic. Uh, be, because you know it forces the, you to imagine the guy that's in it did yeah. you, it's Roger Lloyd Pack he died recently he was um, who was he Trigger in Only Fools and Horses but he did loads of stages brilliant actor I mean that was a, that was an inquiry into the skills of an actor I, asked, I shot the same shot of him walking over a bridge uh, before the Olympic Park was built on the building site of the Olympic Park. And I asked him to, every time he walked over the bridge, he'd walk over the bridge at the side of the motorway and he'd look over into the canal. Uh, 
and he did it about 60 times and every time he did it I told him who he was a different character hmm. a man who just come back from uh, was going from home to work and he just opened a letter that was a letter from a solicitor saying that the divorce who his wife had gone through and then the next time he was a milkman um, on his way back from work and and every time he did it you could see he was a different person it's quite astonishing but he was wearing the same clothes and he didn't say anything Wait, would you ever tell everyone what all the scenarios were like would you I can't I oh know I didn't record I can't remember what they are no. <clears throat> I think that for me I'm not trying to pigeonhole the work at all I swear but for, for me the thing that impresses me about your work is the ability to make people imagine so with that piece you have to imagine a, a story with the um, yeah with all of the work you, you're asking the audience to use the brains a bit it's funny because I often think that I'm really lucky because I have such I must have such a good audience base you look at a lot of spectators in the art world and you go around biennials or you go around you go around art fairs or you go to galleries there's a lot of people that don't invest anything they want it handed to them on a silver plate and they want it as simple as possible they just want emoticons and palm trees and skulls and diamonds and all that simple gaga mama dada baby language not uh, mentioning any names well and the, if I mentioned names, I'd be here for about a year because half the <laughs> art world uses basic signifiers that it's, it, it really startles me, the illiteracy of, of artists in the last five, six years. Astonishing. But anyway, I'm continuing to Victor <laughs> Malger and get really miserable and middle-aged. When I was a lad, it was all brilliant. Up in Manchester, everyone was really clever. Uh... What was I saying? Yeah, so the, the spectators, they invest their energy and their time, you know. And the same with, I guess, collectors that have my works. They, you know, my works never go to auction. Well, they do. But, <laughs> you know, they, they hardly ever go to auction. It's because they're always bought by people who are incredibly conscientious. And they, they understand that the thing that they're buying is a part of history. But the world's sped up so much in the last five, six years. It's like startling um, and terrifying at the same time. The speed. I just, I'm, I'm really into slowness. Slowness is not, I mean, I'm into making a lot of works and quickly. And there's an urgency, but the speed things, it just, just scares me. It doesn't give people time to think about what they're making and what they're looking at it's just like a feeding a feeding frenzy of vampires do you think that's just down to because we're bombarded with imagery that we're, you know everyone's staring at their phone and then having a conversation yeah, and then but you can turn your phone off you know this is what i mean it's the same as cyberbullying and all that you can turn your computer off you don't have to have it on you can not look at it you know, I just don't understand that at all. It's not like heroin. You just turn it off. Um, yeah, speed thing's weird. I don't know. But it's also, yeah. But some people do get addicted. I mean, there's a whole, right? People have been talking at the moment about being addicted to technology and that you need to spend half an hour away from it a day 
It's a bit daft, isn't it? I feel like if, if these are the people that like leave special volcanic stones on the doorstep to stop getting cold. It's just mystic Meg stuff. What talk talk about um the the piece you've done here? The uh, I did two pieces here. One was a public sculpture in the park, which is a US aid parcel stuck in a tree. So it's barrels with a parachute. But when it was dropped, it's got caught in a tree, so it sort of just hangs above your head. And it contains a sort of toolkit um, or time capsule of articles that would be used by me to make an artwork. So it's like a collection of materials and subject matter and reference points. So an unscratched scratch card for the lottery, uh, fool's gold, uh, fake snow, um yeah all sorts and it's called the alchemy box and they're a series and they always look like different things so one would be a pile of magazines but it hasn't a hole inside where everything's in a cavity one could be a sign a light box sign that you'd find in a hospital that says that a room is closed but they always take different the light it's like an analogy from what, what my work is. So all the stuff inside it is the real work, is the is the art, is the soul, is the important stuff, the ideas. And then there's this vessel that it's kept in. Um, and you have to destroy the vessel to see if the stuff's inside or look at the stuff. Uh, but the vessel is like some sort of pseudo pastiche of what art looks like. So it's like I'm trying to make art on the outside, but that's not the art. It's just a sort of cloak for the real thing that's inside they're called alchemy boxes which is i mean it's a perfect companion to the the other piece which is a performance right yeah the other piece was a lot a lot of work that i make i don't know obviously i don't know if it's going to be very good um but that is the point of making art not to make stuff that'll sell or make stuff that's going to be genius pieces i actually don't like genius pieces I like work that you learn from and a lot of the work that I make I don't see through to the end or I chuck it out ends up in the skip but that's the point of being an artist is to learn to try things out and to make mistakes and in the making of those mistakes you develop your own language and your own voice that is unique to you and that's what pushes things forward and that's what writes history anyway um what was I saying the the piece the performance oh yeah it was one of those works I didn't know if it would be very good or not. And there was, I had some anxiety uh, with the idea that in its verbal description, it sounded like a one-liner. Because uh, on one, one hand, you can get works that are one-liners. And on the other hand, you can get works that are incredibly simple and light on their feet. Um, and works can be both of those things. They're almost the same thing. It's a fine line between how it would pan out. But basically, Nicholas, the curator of the public art section, asked me if I wanted to do a performance as well as a public sculpture. And I said, yeah. And he said, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like you to have bodyguards. So he had bodyguards. Did he enjoy it? Uh, I think he's coming down. His ego's coming down from not having them. <laughs> it's quite weird because... I mean, you don't choose what they look like, so it's another, like, 
like so many of my works, I don't choose what it looks like. That's the, the style is just an accident of the conceptual reasoning behind it. They, they look like the way the idea is. It's not like, I'm going to make something with glitter dust, diamond dust, and it's going to be mirrored and flashing and beeping. And, you know, it's like, it doesn't work like that. So I didn't know what these guys would look like. They were just bodyguards. You don't pick them on the website of how they look. You pick them on how good they are at ninjutsu and pulling people's heads off and stuff. Um, and it was great. I was, I was like, so it was one of those investigations to see how it would, the, what the fallout would be and how it would function in the world. And I really enjoyed the, the experience of it. It was, they, they were brilliant. They just guarded him and they, they were constantly looking around on rooftops for snipers. Um, every interview that he did in photo, they were standing beside him, like two bookends. Um, every time he went through the crowd, they like pushed people aside. No one could go up to him and shake his hands unless he nodded at them first. Did you tell them it was a performance or did you sort of? They knew, but I, my, I didn't even give them a directive. I just said, do exactly what you do. You're a bodyguard. You're not an actor. Just do what you do. This is but a very funny thing happened. Um, Nicholas Baum, the curator who had the bodyguards, the next morning after the first performance, went to the fair and he was at the Gagosian stand. And he went, he saw one of his bodyguards on the stand. So he went up to him and said, Fernandez, Fernandez, how's it going? And Fernandez turned around and said, Excuse me, sir. Pretended he didn't know him. And he was with Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> so he was like moonlighting, doing two jobs in one day. What a faux pas. I normally um, try to end with a, a good concluding question, like what's the, what's the point of it all for you? What's the point of it all for me? Yeah. What's the point of art for you? God. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't even want to be an artist. I just ended up being an artist. It wasn't like a plan. Um, yeah, do you know, I'm so lucky. Imagine having my job. It's... It's phenomenal having my job. I'm like the luckiest guy in the world. Uh, yeah. I, I guess if there's one thing that I want to do is I want to be, if you take the analogy of a fire, I want to be like a piece of coal that burns really hot for ages uh, and not be a bit of kindling that's really bright and goes out straight away and doesn't create any heat because it, my job is so good that I want to do it for as long as possible.